Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action, a weekly podcast presented by the Knowledge Center at Chaddock. Our podcast is dedicated to therapists, social workers, counselors, and psychologists working with clients from an attachment-based perspective. Join host Karen Doyle Buckwalter for an insightful, informative, and inspiring conversation with leading attachment theory researchers and clinicians in the field. Today, Karen concludes her two-part discussion with Phyllis Cohen, founder and director of the New York Institute for Psychotherapy Training in Infancy, Childhood, and Adolescence on the Building Blocks program, which she developed. The one thing I want to just point out in terms of this idea, well, it's not behavioral, it's not this, it's not that. Many times uh, folks that you describe um, in these circumstances, they've been to the parenting class. They've yes. been to these, it does, and, and it, 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 for lack of a better word, it doesn't take Okay, so we send them to that class where they're hearing the lecture and I know there's lovely parenting programs like that out there and it doesn't make a difference. It, it, they're back being assigned to that now for the third time. So sometimes I want to say, you know, we tried that way. <laughs> <laughs> you know, do we want to just keep doing that over and over again? Or I just have to spit that out. Um, I, I, it's still there. It's still happening. These There are mandated programs for these moms who have, you know, maybe lost control of themselves or their boyfriend's dog has bitten their child or uh, uh, lost, been angry. There's anger management. There's all these behavioral kinds of programs where the parents are expected to learn the right way to be. And if anything, after all this time, haven't we learned there is no right way for everyone, first of all, and second of all, that learning something cognitively doesn't necessarily translate through the amygdala to the emotional side of the brain. It doesn't get there when there's blocks from trauma that are keeping it from entering. I want to tell you another little vignette uh, that of Please something. Do. Please experience. do. Um, I, I went to do a training with a group of moms who had lost their children to, to foster care and uh, had never had to give up their, their uh, parental rights. And these mothers were now peer mentors to new mothers, young mothers who were losing their children. And I was there to do a training to these peer mentors. The women were mostly in their 50s, maybe. Uh, maybe a little bit older. I, I sat down with them and I had a whole uh, bunch of slides to talk about trauma and how it impacts the nervous system and, and uh, how it interferes with our best judgment and so on. And I had a slide that said, why do perfectly well-intended mothers do harm to their children? And I started to talk about how, and this is straight from the mother-infant picture book that Beatrice and I wrote together with Frank Lockman. Um, it, it, Beatrice's research in 2010 showed that the when a child is distressed, when the mother cannot tolerate the child's distress, that's when the attachment gets disrupted. And over time, we see the insecure and disorganized attachments because the mother's own distress is triggered by the child's distress. So in this group, I was uh, talking to these mothers about how um, 
they uh, showed that slide, why do mothers who mean well hurt their children? Talking about trauma and the impact and the, the trigger of distress when you've had your own trauma and your background. And the, one of the mothers raised her hand crying and said to me, I, I, why didn't anyone ever tell me this? All these years, I blame myself. I don't, didn't understand. No one helped me. They took my children one by one away from me. And now I understand. And an entire table of 12 women started to cry together. And Thank what do you think is the key, the key piece that they understood, the, the main kernel that they understood from that, they would say was what? It didn't mean that they were bad people. There was nothing bad, that they were not malintended, that they tried their best, but they needed help. They needed help to process their own distress that was triggered by their child's distress. Ruth uh, uh, Car Carlin's, R Ruth Lyons Ruth talks about um, uh, how when the mother is triggered in her own distress, the, the, the uh, parent can be withdrawn or can be um, uh, you know, I can't handle this, leave me alone, or coming toward and becoming more aggressive. And those are the kinds of things that we actually see happening. Right. The trigger is the child's distress, which brings them to another place. Right. So they're, and they're, their brains are kind of hijacked by this unresolved trauma that they themselves have. Exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Wow. What a, if the intervention didn't do anything else or your training or whatever you were doing that day, such a gift you gave to these women just learning that. Yeah, it was very moving and, and we were all crying together. Right, <laughs> right. And I think sometimes we're doing the very opposite in the child welfare system and some we're, we're wanting to be beat it into you how bad you are and you have to admit what you did and and all of this stuff um which is the total opposite approach i think you know brings up defenses even more strongly like lessens the chance of of any of that happening and so it's such awesome. a compassionate and caring approach you know that you were sharing there yeah, thank you for sharing that, that story, very powerful. So as we're, you know, I see our hour moving and I would love to talk to you about this for days, but I think, you know, um, another thing about, um, you know, I when I teach about reflective supervision, I talk about, you know, there's administrative supervision. That's are you getting your case notes done and are you getting your billable hours done and you are doing all this and then there's clinical supervision, like the actual case conceptualization and what interventions might help and then that's a totally different thing reflective supervision is what's coming up for you in this work right yeah, exactly and, and I have a very hard time sometimes um because it just doesn't generate uh, a billable hour <laughs> for people to understand the importance of this supervision time and that is a 
it's a different thing than the way a lot of people are thinking about supervision. So tell us a little about how you got buy-in on that and devoting some time to that. You did do it in groups, so at least that helped with some efficiencies, but if you could just share a little bit about that and, and why that is so important, um, that reflective supervision part, different than other forms. Very, very different. Well, as I said, we started in 2012 in this place where the therapists never had an opportunity to talk about their own process. And early on, we would literally cry together about the pain and, and the, um, the activation and the experience of witnessing something that <clears throat> wasn't working and, and, um, and feeling so impotent, so helpless to do anything about it. Um, the groups were set up on an hour and a half block encompassing the, the lunch hours of these therapists. And I would imagine that in the beginning, they didn't want to give up their lunch hour to do this. But I could say over time, uh, after being in the group, I, I don't think that any therapist in our group would miss group if they if they had an opportunity to not miss they would not miss it they come in with their lunches we sit down we eat together we think together we cry together we share we watch the videos we talk about cases we we think about uh, the impact of trauma on the children and the mothers and ourselves and the sharing of it so initially they made room for us in the you know over, overlapping a lunchtime hour, um, and I would say now, if it were in the middle of the day, of their work day, the clinic would set aside the time. At this point, I'm imagining people who are hearing about our program want to go and do their internships and externships at Bills at NAC so that they could be part of this program. Mm. It's, it, yeah. The sharing of what we do has yeah. sort of gone out there. Yes. And other people are wanting to join us. Oh, wow. Yes. Yeah. Even the higher-ups, the administration of the clinic, from the beginning, there was a little bit of um, apprehension. But over time, I, I don't think that that um, is there now in any way. And so I think this leads in a little bit to um, uh, something that you were talking about, about how the model impacted the culture of the clinic. And there's some specific things you might want to say about that. Yes. Well, as, as I said, you know, the, the, the case workers are also mental health workers, but they're not therapists. Right. Some of the case workers have come over to the clinical side and have asked to join our program and wanting to get the training and do the work as well, which is, which is always kind of interesting. But the yeah. fact that those caseworkers and and they change right it's yes. open revolving door of new yes. people coming in each year there's a new supervisor there's a new therapist a, a caseworker and so on that they look at what's going on they see that it's valuable they want the cases that they are assigned to get the benefit of what we're doing in building blocks so it's sort of housed 
in another part of the clinic. And I'm now showing you, as we see each other on this Zoom, that you know, moving from one side to the other, there's been an overlap and, it, and within the entire culture of the agency, there, there has been a shift into yes. valuing what do what standing by and and admiring and observing the power of the relationship the yes. power of the nonverbal interaction what that can do in changing uh, an attachment uh, uh, to make a child move toward a more secure bonded attachment it's it's remarkable and it's been transformative throughout the clinic Wow. So, so um, if I'm hearing this correctly, um, maybe starting out a little scoffing, a little this psychodynamic mumbo jumbo, you know, that, that you want to do. Uh, but then they're seeing changes in these dyads, they're seeing changes in the mothers, I mean, and, and even in the waiting room and spaces like that. So moving more, so then it's gone maybe full circle to, as a caseworker, I want my people I'm working with on my caseload to get this. I mean, really a 360, exactly. which is fantastic. Um, right. Right. And because I think too, uh, caseworkers are very indoctrinated. You make a list of services on the service plan and you check off when they do this and when they do the class and when they do the job training and when they have an appropriate living environment. And I mean, they're very indoctrinated to think in that way. So, I mean, this is a very different way of thinking uh, that you were able to persuade them to join in on. So, yeah, because yeah. they do have to think about all that, too. They do. And, and in fact, the attendance part is really important. And yeah. many of these children have medical issues and, and are hospitalized along yeah. the way. And yes, there's a lot of opportunity to just... Yes, yeah, the medical yeah. things I saw in your articles. Uh, it's just overwhelming. Yeah, that, but in those times when the children are not able to come, yes. they're, they're just, there's a disruption in that momentum of treatment. Yeah. And as soon as they come out, they come back to the, to the program. It's, it's, to, real, to me, it's really been a remarkable progress, process. Right, so they've also seen um, the engagement and retention that people are, you know, wanting to come back and, and be part of the program and finish the program. Um, so that that's just really fantastic. And then, um, and so I would like to share on the research side that you guys. Yeah. So I, I want exactly. I want to tell you that we have wanted our program to be evidence-based, you know, uh, both for the funder as well as for ourselves. But it's not an easy thing to accomplish, especially with the population that we are working with. And so for the first years, the preliminary data was collected using measures that uh, um, assess. Uh, verbal interactions, a lot of verbal measures. Um, we observed a lot of changes. As I said, <coughs> we, excuse me, we started searching for instruments that would measure change. 
And we didn't show great levels of change, except we saw the change and it was something difficult to hold on to. So in 2016, um, my good dear friend Beatrice Beebe and, and colleague suggested that I look at the CIB, which is uh, the Coding Interactive Behavior. It's an evidence-based rating system that was developed by a woman, Ruth Feldman, in Israel. Um, and it's based on 10 minutes of video of free play, where we say to the mother, uh, play with your child in whatever way feels natural for you. <clears throat> and the CIB uses a, two time periods. There's a baseline at the beginning, which is time one. And then in the 12th session, and every 12 sessions thereafter, there's another filming at time two. Um, in the CIB, there's 45 different scales of interaction, looking at the parent, looking at the child, and looking at the dyad and they get coded. We, uh, fortunately, um, I, I met Dr. Jordan, Dr. Jordan Bate at Furkoff Graduate School of Psychology, and she was using um, the CIB. She was a trained coder, a reliable coder, and she had a team of coders who were also reliable, and she was very interested in the Building Blocks project. So, Jordan came on board <clears throat> and we started to um, figure out which videos we would be able to use. Now, as you can imagine, at the beginning of the program, we didn't imagine that we would be doing this research, but we had the archives of data that, that were saved. So we were able to pick out 36 dyads of a time one, time two, and we just now recently completed our first preliminary study of these dyads. And the data, I have to say, Karen, has shown dramatic effects, dramatic changes. This CIB is based on nonverbal interaction. Mm -hmm. A coder is watching the video and picking out patterns of interaction, coding it as number one, it's not observed, number three, it's seen but not consistently, and number five, it's observed consistently. So each of these 45 different scales are coded, watching the video from beginning to end. Um, <clears throat> I wanna tell you some of the examples of our findings thus far. And again, we're going to be publishing it because it's, it's just mind boggling with many of the parents in the beginning when we meet them. There's a, a moderate to high level of intrusiveness and physical forcing. They're into the face of the child, they're pulling, pushing, turning them, moving them in the direction that the parent wants the child to go. And over time, from time one to time two, we found that the behavior of intrusiveness and physical forcing went down significantly. Mm -hmm. Okay. So what else did we see? The, the uh, changes that have been beneficial to the children? Yes. We've seen parents become significantly more acknowledging of their children's nonverbal and verbal communication. Yes. That 
that they're noticing and acknowledging that the child is making contact and there's a response, there's an interaction. We yeah. notice the parents increase in an appropriate tone of voice. Uh, where they may have been speaking very harshly, abruptly, yeah. not sensitively in tune with where the child was, their voice tone has improved considerably. Amazing. Significantly. We've noticed changes in um, being attuned to the expressions of the level of activity and their internal state. So they call it the, an appropriate range of affect, where if the child is getting excited, the mother can join, or the child is being frustrated or upset, the mother can experience that with the child as frustration from the child and not seeing the child as demonized as coming against the mother. Yes. Yeah. Such incredible change, significant change in their creativity and flexibility, which the scale is called resourcefulness, where we've right. seen mothers being able to, two more I want to tell you, that they appear to get more pleasure from their interactions with their children. And this most significant is that the supportive presence has been significantly improved, mm -hmm. where that's providing a secure base. Yeah, their and presence yes. has improved dramatically. That's great. And attunement and moments of meeting and, you know, all of the things that we talk about being so important. And, and, and such another important lesson, a research lesson here is, you know, your what you're using to measure progress needs to be sensitive to what's changing. So it's so good that you guys were saying, no, we know something's going on here. Exactly. Um, a verbal measure is not, and, and the funny thing about that too is, you know, you all these studies about how little communication is really verbal. You know, I'm thinking about, you know, well, why would we be relying on that in the first place? You know, not that, that, not that pieces of that can't be important, of course, but, um, you know, when you knew that there were these changes, but we, we have to be using instruments that can pick up on the change that's happening, or we could have a really effective model, but we can't measure what it's doing. So, so we are very hopeful that yes. our small building blocks program yes. become evidence-based. Yes. Well, it already is. It already is. And you now that you know how to, now that you have a way to quantify and measure change, it's just going to continue to, to build your evidence base. So that's just fantastic. Well, I'm sure anybody listening to this is, is curious, where can I learn more about this? Or how could I implement this? Or, or where do I read about this? So where could listeners learn more about this fantastic program you guys have developed? So we have already published about four or five papers um, about the Building Blocks program, and they've all been published in JICAP, the Journal of Infant, Child, and Adolescent Psychotherapy. But three of the papers that I gave you to read, Karen, yes. were published in 2016. So if anyone is interested in learning about Building Blocks, the one paper that I wrote, which really describes all the components, dyadic treatment, reflective functioning, and video feedback, yeah. um, in forced, fostering attachment. All, all highlighted and marked up. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, thank you. I, I, that was in 2016. Believe it or not, that was written maybe in 2012. So we wow. have a lot more learning that's gone yeah. down. Yeah, and a lot more to share. Yes, yes. To be able to do that. Yes, great. Well, thank you so much for your time today. I know how busy you are, and I so appreciate you you being willing to give me um, an hour of your time and um, even more than that with getting your articles to me and everything. And it's just been very inspiring and just fantastic. I'm so excited for the. Uh, outcomes and the research that you guys are uh, putting together. It's just wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. And it was a pleasure to talk to you about it, to have an opportunity to, to uh, just reflect on what it's been. Thank what? you so much. Goodbye for now. Okay, great. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Attachment Theory in Action. Please follow our site, tkcchattock.org, or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or Podbean for future podcasts. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training, opportunities, and blogs, please log on to tkcchattock.org. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption, trauma, and attachment theory. Attachment Theory in Action.